0: I would invite you now to hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, the question before us this morning is one of critical importance. How can a sinner be accepted in God's sight? Church, how can you or I be right in God's sight? And let's be clear, this is not just a question Paul has been tackling in his letter to the Galatian churches, but but hear me well, this is really the most important question we can ever ponder. Why? Because our being right in God's sight, please hear this, it is not merely some intellectual itch that needs to be scratched, and neither is it primarily a religious or even philosophical knot for us to unravel. But brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is this, eternity hangs in the balance. How can you be right in God's sight? Well, thankfully, scripture doesn't leave us to grope in the dark. Paul is both clear and forceful with his answer. As we saw last week in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, we know what do we know? That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember uh, to be justified. Well, that is a, a legal declaration announced from the courtroom of heaven. So, so when the gavel drops, God announces from the bench justified or righteous. And that is God's pronouncement, not upon those who work hard or who keep the law or how those who somehow cause the the scales to tip in their direction. No. Justification is Galatians 2.16 again, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is so important. You and I, we will not be right in God's sight through our own efforts. As the end of Galatians 2.16 confesses, by works of the law, no one, no one, Paul says, will be justified. So we can only stand right in God's sight on account of Christ. It is his righteousness and his alone that fits us for God's holy presence. And we lay hold of Christ and we lay hold of his righteousness by grace alone through faith alone. This is significant, brothers and sisters. It's weighty, it's critical. It's why John Calvin said, justification by faith alone is the hinge upon which everything turns. Martin Luther said something similar. If the doctrine of justification is lost, Luther says, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. J.I. Packer articulated it memorably. He said, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. But there is a problem, at least one that is perceived by those whose eyes haven't yet been opened to the grace of the gospel. So, so here's the problem, the danger, the, the charge, and, and you can see it leveled in our passage this morning. The problem with sola gratia and sola fide, grace alone and faith alone, the problem is this, it creates utter lawlessness. At least, that was the charge that was leveled against Augustine in the early church. It was the charge leveled against the Reformers by the Roman Catholic Church. And it is the same charge that is leveled today against those who are zealous for the gospel of grace. The argument goes like this. If if churches, if pastors, if they can't beat and cajole and, and threaten church members to be good, right? If If people are truly justified by faith alone... Well, then won't people just live like godless heathens? Well, church, this has been the charge since the beginning, one that even Paul himself faced. Verses 17 and 18 record, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, admittedly, I'll be the first to concede this passage is difficult, it's thorny, but the overall point is is actually quite clear, and it is simply this. Paul, and by implication, Peter here, remember that that that's the context, they have sought Christ and his righteousness. Why? Because like the Gentiles, they too know they are sinners. And so, Paul and Peter, Jews, mind you, they've given up on the law as a way of getting right with God, and instead, they have fallen entirely upon Christ and Christ alone. Well, this idea prompts the hypothetical question at the end of verse 17. Is Christ, then, a servant of sin? You see, it seems the Judaizers were attacking Paul and his gospel of grace. You find a a similar sentiment expressed in Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And just like in Romans 6.1, you get a similar answer here in Galatians 2. Certainly not. Not absolutely not. No, no way. Christ being the justifier and sinners being the justified and all of this solely on account of Christ, that doesn't even for a moment make Christ a servant or promoter of sin. Not at all. Let's be very clear. Christ is the answer, not the problem. Christ is the ointment, not the disease. But again, the the Judaizers... They were less than content with Christ. They wanted to chain the Christian to the law of God, something that would keep him in line. But church, remember, Christ has released us from the shackles of the law. Through the gospel, we've been set free from that stiff straitjacket. And besides, I I mean, how, how can the law be the answer anyway? How can the law be the remedy to our disease? All the law does, and remember, this has been Paul's point and will remain Paul's point throughout Galatians. All the law does is reveal our need. It doesn't actually solve it. Sure, the x-ray might expose the tumor, but, but it doesn't cut it out. No, not, not at all. You see, the law is a bony finger pointing at the sinner, accusing and warning. But but the law in and of itself is void of good news. You might think of it this way. Let's say you were driving home this afternoon and, and as you were doing so, your gas light comes on in your car. So, so it's flashing and buzzing. It's letting you know you are on E. Well, that light... Let's be clear, it doesn't put fuel in the tank, does it? It merely tells you that you have a problem. And that's really how the law works. It tells us the standard. It reveals to you and I what holiness and and what righteousness really looks like. But it doesn't help us achieve that holiness or righteousness. It doesn't offer us grace or, or anything like that. It just flashes and buzzes like our car does when it's on empty, letting us know how empty we are, warning us of our deficiency. Well, it's in that vein that Paul adds in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You see, church, the purpose of the law is to reveal we are sinners in need of Christ. So, if Paul, and by implication the, the Christians in Galatia here, if they were to return to the law, to, verse 18, rebuild what has been tore down, all that would do is show the need once again they have for Christ, It it would be like showing up to the gas pump and instead of putting gas in your car, you just sit there in the stall and bark at the gas light to just turn off. Or you, you get really creative and you, you find some electrical tape and you put it over that pesky light that is bothering you. Or maybe you're a bit more ambitious and so you, you pop the hood and you try and disconnect whatever that little cord is that, that's causing that annoying light to go off. And and you think to yourself, well, that'll fix it. Well, that might solve one problem, but I assure you, it will create many more. The the Christians in Galatia, and the Christians here at Redeeming Grace as well, we must ever breathe this air. You can only be right in God's sight through Christ. To return to the law, even for a moment, and think that keeping it will somehow merit you righteousness before God, brother or sister, that will do you no good. In fact, it will actually do you much harm. It will only squelch your assurance, rob your joy, and eventually damn your soul. And if you were to scratch your head and ask why, the answer is this. All the law will do, dear saint, is tell you that you are a sinner. Instead, please hear this, Christian, You need to remember, you are dead to the law. Brothers and sisters, there is an obituary in the paper, and it is yours. It reads, you are dead to the law. That's really what verse 19 is, isn't it? At least the first part. It is your obituary. For through the law, verse 19, I died to the law. Christian, and if you are not a Christian here, this is massively important for you as well, so so please lend me your ear. The law will never make you right before God. Why? Because the law requires perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. There is no grace. There is no grading on a curve. If you color outside of the lines just one time and even just a little bit, that's it. You're toast. Which means that for sinners like you and I— All that the law offers is death. And let's be clear, that is exactly what we deserve. And not just death, but really for our sin, we deserve the full weight of the curse of God to fall upon us. So if if you were to stand before God, he who is utterly perfect and righteous and holy and glorious and wonderful and powerful and, and beautiful if you were to stand before him on your own two feet, resume in hand, know this, you would immediately be cast from his blessed presence into the pit of hell where you'd suffer the righteous judgment for your sin. That, my friends, is what the law demands. But here is the good news now. The good news is this. The penalty of the law... This good and right and just penalty of the law for lawbreakers like you and I, it has already been meted out, right? So the hammer of God's judgment for sin, it has already pounded the sinner. And that happened when God unsheathed his sword and plunged that sword deep into the soul of his son as he hung there on the cross. We'll see Paul flesh this out further in Galatians 3, but it bears hearing and and believing and rejoicing. And even now, Christ was made sin for us. Christ was cursed of God for us. As our substitute, he stood in our place and received the full measure of wrath you and I deserve for our sin. So please hear this, Christian. Because Christ was cursed of God, right? Because the penalty of the law has already fallen upon Christ for you, now, now the law has nothing to say to you. The law is a covenant of works. The law that demands your perfection. The law that thunders over you. The law that condemns and threatens and accuses. You are Dead to it. You've been set free from its power and its authority. Consider this for a moment if you can. Uh, Let's say I was to, to barge into your house and I was to flash one of those cheap plastic police badges that they sell at the dollar store. Let's say I were to kick in your door, flash that badge, and begin demanding that you do this or that you do that. May I suggest that you would lend me no allegiance, and rightfully so. Why? Well, because I have no authority over you. Well, Christian, the same is true for the law. Verse 19 again, for through the law, I died to the law. That relationship has ended. Just like death is what terminates a marriage, so death is what terminates the relationship between the Christian and the law. So here's the question then, the one lingering in the back of Paul's mind as he addresses the Galatians, and the one that we should be mindful of as well. Here it is. If you are dead to the law, which you are, then why return to it? Why seek justification through it? Why would you do that? You have Christ. You have the fullness of Christ and his righteousness. Why on earth then would you return to the law thinking it will make you righteous by what you do or by what you don't do? Christ has already done it all for you. Paul presses into this very thing in verse 21, doesn't he? In a lot of, in a lot of ways, verse 21 gets to the heart of the matter. Paul asks, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christian, if you can be made right by your doing, by your works, your obedience, then the question is this, why did Christ come in the first place? Why would the father send his son? Why would the son of God become incarnate? Why would Christ submit to the law of God, meriting righteousness for us, and then die a sinner's death, paying the penalty we owed? Brothers and sisters, why would there even be a gospel in the first place if you could attain righteousness on your own through the law? I should add, this is really what makes legalism and so many versions of the Christian life not just not helpful, but also downright ugly. They make it as if Christ died in vain. They they act as if Christ died for no purpose. And Calvin, he pounces on this same idea. He says, to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. Church, let me put it this way, just as you would be rightly mortified to find out someone went down to the local cemetery and dug up a corpse and then put clothes on it and then sat that corpse up in the front seat of their truck and drove around town with it as if it were alive. So Christian, it should mortify us to try and resume some relationship with the law whereby we think it will make us right. In God's sight, to do so is a great affront to Christ. To do so would be to to resurrect the law, which has died, and to do so would be to kill Christ, who has been raised to everlasting life. But please notice, the morning paper has more than just an obituary in it. There's also a birth announcement. Verse 19 again, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Redeeming grace, don't miss this. This is a death, yes, but one that leads to new life. Sure, there is a grave, but there is also a resurrection. Now, to be clear, this new life is the new life of regeneration. This is what God does through the gospel. God the Father, by his Holy Spirit, he opens the eyes of the sinner. And then as the scales fall from the sinner's eyes, he is now able to see for the first time the beauty and the sufficiency and the glory and the righteousness and the power and the pardon that is found in Jesus Christ. Just as in physical birth, a new life is brought into the world, so it is in spiritual birth. A new life is brought forth into the kingdom of God. And this new life, this being born again, as Jesus would put it, it really is new life. So much so that now, for the Christian, hear this, the focus of his life is not on the law or how he can earn God's favor or merit heaven. But now, the focus of his life is on the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it new life. The Apostle, he he fleshes all of this out in verse 20, this new life. And perhaps verse 20 is one of the most glorious passages in all of sacred Scripture. We read in verse 20, the Apostle confesses, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, what makes this passage such good news, such, such an anchor for our souls amidst the tumultuous waves of life is this. You and I, we are united to Christ. We're joined to him. Think about this. Just as a husband and wife are made one flesh by God in the covenant of marriage, Just as the baby and the mama are joined together in the womb, just as the head is united together with the body, so Christ and the Christian are inseparable. That's how and why Paul can speak of dying with Christ and living with Christ. Because the Lord Jesus and the Christian, they are wed together by the glue Of the gospel. Perhaps we can go at this from a different angle. When you look at the cross of Christ, you should see at least three things nailed to that cross. The first, of course, is Christ Himself, right? You you see Him there on the cross. The spikes that pierced our Savior's hands and feet, they fix him to that cursed cross. Most gloriously, perhaps, you should see that your sins are also nailed to that cross. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 record, "'And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses.'" By canceling, we are told, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, verse 14, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So catch this, Christian. The laundry list of sins you've committed, and let's be honest, the sins you will still commit, they cry out for judgment. But that record of debt, it has been taken away. It's set aside, to use the language of Colossians. Your rap sheet, the one that stood and condemned you, it was executed on the cross, right? Just as Jesus died on the cross, so did your record of sins that condemns you. It's dead. Most shocking, though, is the third thing, that you should see nailed to that cross. And that is you. Verse 20 again, I have been crucified with Christ. I, you, we have been crucified with Christ. And as Paul goes on to say in that passage, it is no longer I who live. So, so look to the cross, Christian. What do you see? You see Christ was crucified. You see your sins were crucified. And you see you yourself, Christian, were crucified. That's how joined to Christ you are. Now, to be clear, you are still you and I am still me. That, that's obviously the case. But the point is, we are so joined to Christ, so tightly knit to him by grace alone through faith alone, that when he died, so did we. I'm, I'm sorry that you have to find out this way, but if you are a Christian, you've already had your funeral. You are dead. But, and here's the good news, you've also come back to life. Again, that is what regeneration is. Regeneration is spiritual resurrection. Just as Christ died, so did you. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too have been raised to new spiritual life. So that now, through the Holy Spirit, Christ is actually living through us and in us and for us. It is middle of verse 20, no longer I who live. It's not you or me who's living but Christ who lives in me. Which means we are new. We are alive. We are, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, new creations. Christ is in us. His spirit directs us and empowers us and controls us. Church, you've got to know we are not what we used to be. We are no longer those in Adam, dominated by this fallen age. But now, by the grace of the gospel, we are in Christ. We are not under the law, but under grace. We do not live by works, but by faith. Our whole life, our our whole existence, really, it has been revolutionized and reoriented by the fact that we have been united to Christ by faith and faith alone. And here's the big point. Here is the polemical jab or more like uppercut of Paul. It is not just that we are saved by faith, but we also live by faith. Church, it's not just that, that we are justified, justified by faith and then you know, just like left to ourselves, left to the law or to our works or to our obedience to, to keep this whole thing going. No. Our whole life as a Christian, it is to be one of faith. That, that is to say, where we refuse to look to self and instead we look to our Savior. As Paul says again in the middle of verse 20, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's a life of faith. The Christian life, from beginning to end, from justification to glorification and, beloved, everything in between, it is a life of faith. Let's be clear, it's not like we simply trust Christ or rely upon him merely for our conversion and then, you know, we sort of like take our eyes off of him and we just look to ourselves to grow in grace. No, no, it's all by faith. If I can use some theological jargon, Christ is sufficient not just for justification, that's true, but also for sanctification, and I, and I think that this is really where so many Christians go sideways so fast. They, they think and, and they'll, they'll die on this hill. they say, well, I'm, I'm saved by faith. The Christian life starts by faith. But then, and sometimes rather quickly, faith is no longer enough. We, we want to add to it. We want to build upon what Christ has done. For the Judaizers, this manifested itself with certain food laws, or or circumcision, or the keeping of Old Covenant feast days. But let's be very clear, evangelicals have their own list of rules, don't they? In so many churches these days, it's true, you start by faith. That's that's how you are saved, but then it quickly becomes your turn, right? So, So you have to homeschool. You have to read X amount of chapters of the Bible per day. You need to pray so many hours. You need to make sure that you show up every time the church doors are open. And you'd better be careful that you never drink alcohol, that you dress a certain way for church, that you never watch Disney, that you always eat vegan, that you lower your carbon footprint, that you subscribe to the right Reformed Confessions, and that you never no, never watch sports on a Sunday. And if you would just do that stuff, then, then, well, you'd be good. Then you might have assurance. Then you might have Grace. Isn't it true, Christian? It's so quickly and and sometimes so unknowingly. We find ourselves no longer living by faith in Christ, but instead we find ourselves living by our own works. Let me be very clear. Whether something is prudent or biblical is not the issue here. That's not what I'm talking about. The issue is this. What are you standing on? What are you trusting in? What are you banking on? What is your only hope in life and death? And unfortunately, for so many Christians, it quickly devolves into us. It's our performance. It's our deeds. It's these certain boxes we've checked. But let me just say, if that's you, then you must repent. Christian, you must repent. Repent because when you live like that, not only are you a miserable wreck, be honest, you are, but you also impugn the very glory of Christ. How so, you ask? Because you are thinking and acting and living and operating as if Christ isn't enough. So, so regardless of what you say you believe, regardless of what confession of faith you subscribe to on paper, you are living as though Christ died for nothing. Let, let me really press this into you, deep into your soul, as much as I can, begging the Holy Spirit to plant that seed there and cause it to bring forth life. Let me, let me press that seed into your soul, and it's the seed of verse 21, if righteousness were through the law, if that were the case, then, verse 21, Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if you could do it yourself, if you could get or merit or attain or earn righteousness through you, through your doing, then all Christ did was nothing but an exercise in futility. I hope you see then, Christian, how massive all this is. How it lifts a heavy burden from your soul. How it puts your eyes on Christ. How it exalts him. How it engenders faith in you. I trust that you can see and feel and experience how the good news of Christ causes your soul to sing. And church, that is because the good news of the gospel is simply this, Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Let me conclude then by returning to that initial question I asked, that most important question. Redeeming grace, how can a sinner be accepted in God's sight? How can you and I be right in God's sight? what we must see what the gospel opens our eyes to see is this the law can't do it you can't do it your attitudes and actions can't do it your discipline and devotion can't do it your feelings and fidelity can't do it nothing you ever do or don't do is enough only christ can do it only christ is enough And Christ is what is offered to us in the gospel. So trust him. Christian, live by faith. And by that, I do not mean we'll have faith just one time in the past when you were converted and Christ got this whole thing started for you. But now today, no, no, no. Live by faith. Middle of verse 20 again. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. Right now, in this moment, trust Christ afresh. And then do the same thing tomorrow, and then the next day, and then next week, and next month, and next year, and next decade. Live by faith, resting in and relying upon the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Our Father, We pray that you would show us that Christ is sufficient for us. Open our eyes to him that our souls might love him and find joy in him and rest in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.